You're tuned to Resonance 104.4 FM, the art of listening. Radio Gallery, Voice to Voice, Kitchen Magic Time, Show Me the Money, War, Rockford, The Marvin Suicide Show, Sifting, All New Epistaxis Time, Glue Peter, Lee Patterson's Audio Sketchbook, Cyber Chutney Arsducks, and The Other Woman. Station. Resonance FM. Frequency. 104.4 FM. URL. ResonanceFM.com. What's new? The schedule. When? Now. For more information, go to ResonanceFM.com. I'm Sheldon Brown. This is The Bike Show on Resonance 104.4 FM. Resonance 104.4 FM. My name's Jack Thurston, and this is the Bike Show. Uh, and it's great on the Bike Show, from time to time, to be in the presence of cycling greatness. And this is one of those shows. Um, sitting across from me in the studio is Michael Hutchinson, um, a dominant figure in British time trialing, who's um, here this week, not to talk just about British time trialing, but to talk about a book that he's just written, it's just been published, called The Hour, Sporting Immortality the Hard Way. Welcome to the show, Michael. It's nice to be here, Jack. And um, your book is kind of about two things, really. It's about the hour record, as in how far is it possible to cycle in an hour, and also your own personal quest. It's kind of the history of, of, of the hour as a sporting um, uh, record, and your, your quest to break that record. I mean, what drew you to the hour in the first place? Well, I, I came into cycling via a slightly odd route, and I found myself, after a year or two as a, as a full-time cyclist, I found that I wasn't kind of getting where I wanted to go, and I was really looking for a shortcut. Um, and I, I didn't have time to work my way up through the team structure all the way to the top of the sport via the, the kind of the conventional route. Um, and because I was a time trial specialist, and they are record 
is are usually described as the ultimate time trial, I, I thought here was something that if I could do anything well in cycling, this was going to be it. So I thought I would just kind of take a short try and take a shortcut straight to the top. I mean, it's and it's a certain amount of impudence, if I may say so, because this is, I mean, and this is perhaps how your attempt was perceived by the kind of uh, cycling establishment, um, because the hour has traditionally been something that's not even been attempted many times. I mean, it sounds like an easy thing. You know, a cyclist has just got to go around a track for an hour and, uh, and, re- and, and, and record a, a distance. Um, but it's actually not been attempted um, many times. Is that well, right? It's, it's not attempted all that often. When I was researching the book, um, I counted up the number of people who've held the record. There have only been 25 men who've ever held the record. Um, and I reckon there's probably only another dozen who've attempted it. So you're looking at, in sort of 113 years of cycling history, you're looking at probably only, you know, 30, 35, maybe a few I don't know about, maybe it's 40. But that's the number of people who have ever actually ridden around a track for an hour. And part of it is because there's no, so there's no sort of world championships, there's no hour racing, there's nothing like it. So if you want to have a go at the hour record, you have to, you know, organise the whole thing yourself. And because it's an international event, it's an international record, you have to put all the same things in place that you would if you were organising an international track championships. So you've got to do all that and base it around one rider um, and try and try and you know, organise that, try and finance it, try and get the sponsors for it. And this kind of, So it's actually a very difficult thing to do and it takes a certain amount of cockiness to even decide you're going to have a go. And it, it takes an absurd amount of cockiness if you come from the sort of background I came from. Um, I can see this much more sharply in retrospect. Um, to decide, wake up one morning and think, I know, I'm going to have a go at the hour record. I mean, let's, let's go through the kind of pantheon of, of hour record holders, which you, you chart very well um, in, in the book while describing your own preparations. I mean, wh- wh- who was the first uh, hour record holder and, and why did they choose the hour? Well, the, the very first official holder was um, Henri de Grange, who you may ah, well be familiar with. Ah, the great Henri de Grange, The yeah. great Henri de Grange, HD himself, who founded the, the Tour de France ten years later. Um, he actually rode the first, personally rode the first official R record. Now, you'll know Henri de Grange was not a man who was short on self-regard, but even he didn't reckon he was that terrific a cyclist. He just, he saw a main chance to get in first. Um, and, of course, still has his name at the top of all the record books. There were some attempts for him on, on ordinary to penny farthings, which you can track all the way back to somewhere into the 1870s, um, very often in, in England. But, of course, there wasn't an official body to regulate any of that, so you know, some of those will be exaggerated, some of them are a bit peculiar. Um, but you certainly, the, the idea of the R record goes back pretty much to the beginning of cycle sport, mm-hmm. and, and I think they picked an R just because in that Victorian era... Those kind of challenges were, were very very popular. Um, well, they very are. I mean, it's like it's kind of like the four minute mile or the ten second hundred meter dash. It's it's mm. a kind of nice round number, isn't it? it? It's a nice round number, and you find a lot of twenty four hour races and things in in Victorian eras, and then you had six day racing in both on, on the track on, on on the track, and both running and and cycling had six hour races, six day races. I'm sorry. Um, and that was because that was the longest period of time you could race for without racing on the Sabbath. So they started at sort of right. midnight on, on Monday and finished at midnight the on Saturday. Victorians that they yeah. were. Um, good and you had, Victorians. You found fabulous photographs of guys shaving while riding their bikes around, uh, around the track because they raced non-stop for six days. Hmm, what did they do with their call of nature? Because on the Tour de France, they kind of stop in a 
in an avenue of poplar trees and, and get to get away from the helicopters. But on a track, there isn't really any any escape, is there? Oh, there was a fabulous story. Now, I can't remember the rider involved. There was a rider who, who put a bottle down his shorts, a very long, thin bottle. And this was enabled him to ride and ride and ride. And he had an opponent to whom he could have gave drinks of water the whole way through the race very generously, who, after sort of 12 or 13 hours, was absolutely dying, dying to get off his bike for a pee, and eventually had to. Meanwhile, his opponent sailed merrily round, quietly filling the bottle that he'd got stuffed down the leg of his shorts. <laughs> I wish I could remember the rider. I hadn't expected to end up talking about six-day <laughs> racing. I would, have, I would have done my revision before I would, I'd come in if I'd known. <laughs> so through the, um, through the 20th century, it's, uh, the hour's been... Um, our record's been held by kind of a lot of the greats, mm. hasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, you've got Fausto Coppi, uh, the great Italian, Eddie Merckx, who I still think is probably the greatest cyclist of them all, Jacques Anquetil, who was probably the best time trialist of them all. Um, you're three to guys like Enrico Baldini, the Olympic champion. Um, more recently, Francesco Moser, um, Chris Boardman, obviously, yeah, who I mean, we all well, know. I guess once you get up Graham to Abri. that era, that, I mean, th- those are the, the boardman Obri battle of the styles battle of the individuals was a little bit like cycling's version of uh sebastian co versus steve Ovet, wasn't it? it it was and there was such a fabulous contrast between between the two styles you'd got um chris boardman who you have photographs of training in a laboratory surrounded by guys wearing sort of white coats and holding heart rate monitors and oxygen analysis and the whole the rest of it Versus Graham Abrey, the maverick, always described as a maverick from Ayrshire, who trained if he felt like it, who ate marmalade sandwiches, who'd never been in a lab in his life, who famously had a bike built with uh, parts from a washing machine. Uh, and the contrast just couldn't have been more stark. You'd got sort of hard-edged science versus a much more, you know, a much more offbeat approach. It was, it was terrific. And it was something that the, the press and the mainstream press was very easily able to pick up on. But then with that battle between Boardman and Aubrey and the focus started to become around the bicycle um, and transforming the bicycle. So you had the Lotus bike with its mono fork and all kinds of innovations to do with the wheels. It's at that point where uh, the UCI, the, the governing body of cycling, starts to get involved a bit more closely, specifying what's allowed, what's not allowed. And then when was the, this distinction between the hour as it was, you know, with any kind of bicycle, and then the hour as the athlete's hour, which is what you were focusing on, the hour where you had to ride a bike from the kind of classic era of, of the, you know, 60s and 70s. Well, the, the distinction between the the ultimate hour and the um, the athlete's hour came around after Boardman broke the record in 1996 because he, he set a record in 1996, which was 35 sorry 56.325 kilometers which is still one of the most astonishing things anybody has ever done on a bike this is, is so he was incredible. going at an average speed of it's over 56 kilometers an hour yeah. in real money that's it's 35 miles an hour 35 mm-hmm. miles an hour that's pretty extraordinary it's one of those things the next time you're riding down a long gentle hill with a little bit of a tailwind and if you've got a computer on your bike take a look at 35 well, that, miles an hour the idea of doing it on the flat for an hour I mean, is, this is the is thing i was i was last week in um in france for a, a few days um, just cycling around visiting some friends and i knew i was going to be talking to you on monday in the show and so i thought well i'll, I'll see how fast i can go and and i kind of found bits of flat land because i thought it was important to have 
something flat. And keep it fair, yep. Yeah, keep it fair. And, and I had the computer on and I was on my, on my bike and the kind of the maximum I could get up to on the flat was about sort of 43 or 44 kilometers an hour. And that was absolutely flat out. I could hold for about three seconds before yeah. I collapsed. Oh, well, but Boardman set this record and, and in doing it used the most cutting edge technology and the most aerodynamic possible positions on the bike. And the UCI look, look, took a look at this and decided that actually they didn't really like the look of the whole thing. I still think it was essentially an aesthetic decision. They wanted to keep cycling as close to everyday bike riding as they could. So in, in, in 2000, um, they came up with this idea in collaboration with Chris Boardman, who originally suggested it, um, of a back-to-basics record where you have a, a triangular um, frame probably made out of steel the regulations are designed around the ideas of steel tubing diameter so the easy way to make one make it out of steel simple triangular bike ordinary drop handlebars round tubes spoke wheels you know the kind of classic old-fashioned uh, track bike that so that essentially the same kind of thing that eddie Merckx rode when he set his record in 1972 i mean and the nice thing about that in a sense is that when you're racing now you are racing against people who are no longer alive um, you, you're, you're, you're testing yourself against a century of, of cycling greatness in a way that now, with, with most sports, it's very difficult to say, is uh, Eddie Merckx better than Lance Armstrong? Uh, who, you know, is Fausto Coppi better than both of them? I mean, th- this, it's difficult to make these comparisons, but with the hour, you have this sort of purity, especially with the athletes hour. You, you have a simplicity that certainly makes comparison uh, a sensible and plausible thing to do. Obviously, there are changes. The tracks have actually changed more than anything else because we use you know, short indoor tracks now, which are inherently a bit quicker. But someone who rides, uh, let's say, 40, 48, 49 kilometers in an hour on a track... Um, today, yeah, that's someone who would have been up there with guys like Eddie Merckx with, and with guys like Fausto Kopi the whole way back. It's, it's, you know, it's a comparison that does at least make some sense, and that's, that's one of the nice things about it. Well, we've established what the hour is all about, but how did you kind of come to it? What was, you, you, you didn't have a traditional entry into cycling. You weren't what, a kind of child prodigy no. picked out with a sort of overambitious father who said, right, son... You know, you're going to be able to do what I could never do. I'm going to take you down to the, the cycling club and, and, you know, drive you to all these races. I mean, it, it's a fascinating story that you tell in the book about how you actually came to, to, to uh, cycle a bike competitively. Well, I mean, as you say, my, my parents have never been terribly interested. In fact, I've been a, a full-time cyclist for something like six years. My parents have never actually seen me race. I did the Commonwealth Games uh, a few months ago. They didn't actually get up in the middle of the night to even watch. All they had to do was switch the TV on. I mean, I rode a bike when I was a kid, like everybody else. I mean, I grew up in a house in an isolated house in rural Northern Ireland. You want to get anywhere, you need a bike. Um, I did that. As soon as I could afford a car, I gave the bike to somebody, and that was more or less the end of it. Um, I, I then I took up running. I tried running. I didn't much like that. And I was actually in London uh, with my then with my with my girlfriend, um, and her father said, "Oh, you, you do a bit of running. Oh, come 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 and try cycling. You'll you'll enjoy that." So he lent me a spare bike because he was a racing cyclist. So, of course, he had his winter hack bike with uh, flappy mudguards and all the rest of it. So he lent me that and took me out to Richmond Park. Um, 
and I rode, and I just just loved it. I just it wasn't something. I mean, I'd ridden bike as a kid, but I hadn't ridden sort of a top end, top spec bike with you know, the light, the alloy wheels, the kind of the lightweight racing bike. And I just loved it because you were skimming along a couple of feet above the ground. And I started borrowing that bike when I was in London, when I was staying down here, and I'd go to the park, and I started to notice that I could go faster than everybody in the park. And initially, I couldn't understand why they rode so slowly, because it seemed to me it was a lot more fun if you went if you went fast. So I was belting around Richmond Park at an average speed of sort of 42, 43 kilometers an hour, shouting sort of a cheery, hi there, at, at, at guys I was passing. And, and they all scowled at me murderously, because I was annoying the hell out of them. And so I you went, had in kind of what the terminology of the highly technical uh, sports scientists would call a big engine. Big engine, yep. Um, at a big engine, which is actually affinity. particularly well adapted to cycling. I mean, I'm, I'm not a bad runner. I used to row. I was all right at that. Any sort of endurance sport I would be okay at. But cycling just seemed, as well as the engine, it just seemed to suit my body's shape, my body size, my weight. It was just a good fit. Um, so I went from I went from thundering around Richmond Park um, to I entered my first time trial up in uh, in Bedfordshire, which to be fair I think I finished about eighth in, uh, and I, I worked from, I went I went from there. I spent sort of two or three years just practicing, sort of saving up money to buy the flash kit and the disc wheels and all the rest of it, all the time trial stuff, and just gradually got quicker and quicker and quicker until by 1999 I was winning national championship medals. Um, I was winning a lot of events i was setting records uh at the end of 1999 i got a phone call from uh a guy who ran a team who said do you want to come and ride for the team next year we'll give you we'll give you such and such and at that point i was living in a student room in cambridge and the uh the lease on the student room ran out i think about two weeks hence and i hadn't anywhere to live or anything to eat or anything any income so of course i said yes because it was either that or starve most people who become a professional athlete do it because it's been a lifetime's ambition and they've worked their way towards it. I just wanted enough money to buy a few more tins of baked beans. Well, let's stop you there. Let's uh, have a pause for uh, a little bit of music. sundown shining in him I found my mind in a brown paper bag but then I tripped on a cloud and fell eight miles high I tore my mind on a jagged sky I just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in I pushed my soul in a deep dark hole and then I followed it in I watched myself crawling out as I was crawling in I got up so tight I couldn't unwind I saw so much I broke my mind I just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in. Well, you're listening to Resonance FM. This is The Bike Show. My name's Jack Thurston, and joining me, continuing to join me in the studio is Michael Hutchinson. 
um, who has just written a book about the hour record, hour record in cycling. Michael, what is the balance between your own natural ability and how much you train as a as a professional cyclist? Um, I must admit, I think an awful lot of it is natural ability uh, because I know a lot of guys who train harder than I do and they send me emails every day to tell me how much training they're doing and they don't go as fast as I do. I train I train a moderate, sensible amount and I, I go pretty quickly. I, maybe if I train more, I'd go faster. But you're always looking for that balance between more training and too much training, which makes you makes you overtired, you don't recover and you get slower and slower. And I think an awful lot of it is, is natural ability. Otherwise, there would be an awful lot of guys who would all go at the same kind of speed because there's only so many hours in a day. So you train as much as you can. Everyone would go at the same speed and they don't. So something separates us. In, in, your, in your book, this thing of natural ability, um, and you, you could come across as a certain amount of arrogance because you're saying, well, look, I could sit on the beach for a year and then turn up and probably still come in the top 10 of the national national time trial and that's got to be galling for people to read that but then again you're sort of saying well actually it's nothing to do with me as is what I do and, and the virtues of, of myself it's just my you know natural endowments you know this is what I was born with and this is how it works you know how how has your vision and, and your perception of these things been taken on board by the rest of the cycling community because there is definitely this focus on on training and and buying the right bike and buying the right wheels and having the right sort of energy bars and all this kind of stuff that's there's, there's a lot and there's a lot of industry that's trying to sell people stuff to make them go faster i mean yeah i would i would say that maybe maybe 60 percent of it maybe 70 percent of it is natural ability i mean training does help i go a lot faster after a, sort of a period of good, consistent training than I do um, if I have been, as you say, sitting on a beach for a year. Uh, but there, there, there is a balance. Um, people, li- people like training. Cyclists like riding their bikes. It's, it's one of the joys of cycling is that people just love doing it. And it's, it's terrific to go training because it gives you a structure and a purpose because otherwise you're just ambling around, ambling around Richmond Park or ambling around Surrey or whatever it is you're doing. So, 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 so it's, important, it's important that there's some structure there, and it certainly it does help. But as I say, I, I think that a lot of it does boil down to, to natural ability. And it's not arrogance. I don't, I, at least I hope it's not arrogance, because in the same breath as I say, well, I could spend a year sitting on a beach and I'd still beat you, Lance Armstrong could spend a year sitting on a beach and he'd still beat me. So he's got an even bigger engine. Yeah, um, there's always a bigger gorilla. There was always there is always a bigger snake waiting. Um, it's I mean I'm better than a lot of people. There's a lot of people who are better than me, and whatever all of us do, we're all pretty much going to stay that way. Yeah, so who's got the who's got the biggest engine in the Tour de France that hasn't been disqualified? Oh, the biggest engine left. Withdrawn. Oh heck, Floyd Landis maybe. Uh, you Den- reckon? Uh, Dennis I, 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 Floyd Landis or Cadell Evans um, I, mean, I raced Cadell Evans at the Commonwealth Games a few years ago and he walked all over me um, and it would be quite nice to see him win the Tour de France or something it would make me feel a bit less um, ashamed of myself So in terms of your preparations for the hour I mean, how long did you have uh, to prepare from when you decided that this is something that you were going to do uh, to the actual appointed day? Well, you can look at it two ways. I think I had about nine months from the point where I decided I was going to give this a go to the point where we actually had to go onto the track and do the attempt. In another way, I'd spent the previous five or six years getting ready for it because it's it's a time trial. It's the same thing. Um, it's the same training. It's the same physiology. But you were, um, you, you were going up to the track in Manchester an awful lot. 
I was tr- and I had a lot, awful lot of the M6. I have to admit, I saw in uh, in the nine in the nine months we spent getting getting ready for it. The, the, the difficult thing, to be honest, is actually getting, despite the simplicity of the athletes, our bikes. It's getting bikes sorted out. It's getting wheels. It's working on the position because obviously, at a modern time trial bike, you have quite a refined position and you know a lot about how to make that work. We go back to riding something that nobody's ridden in this sort of context for you know maybe twenty years. And you kind of have to do a lot of relearning, um, and that—that's the thing that, that that made it difficult. Not the actual, the physical side of it. Hopefully, I, I understood from my normal training. It's actually the logistics and the technical bits, which, as I say, is unexpected in a back-to-basics record. And you had a kind of series of catastrophes that oh, well, chronicled with an enormous amount of good humor actually I, I don't know if that's hindsight because it sounded like you're probably pulling your hair out at the time i was pulling my hair out at the time with some of these things but in the end it's sport and if you take it too seriously you've got it wrong um it's only sport it's it's the closest thing an adult comes to being able to play the fact that i get paid as a living for, for, for doing that i mean it in some ways you have to take it more seriously but you also have to, to keep keep a grip on the fact that it's only riding a flaming bike around a track that's all it is and so you are not the hour record holder, and you've had a couple of goes at it. Um, what 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 were the problems? Do you think in the in in the, in the two attempts that you had, or, or you know what what if you're going to have a third go? Are you going to have a third go? And, oh, and if know. you are, I might. Do. What would you correct? The the problems we had in the first attempt related to logistics, um, the problems we had in the second attempt, although it may seem in an indoor track, largely related to weather because the tolerances are so fine that actually air pressure makes a heck of a difference. Um, the thick air is harder to push through than thin air. It's the same principle as going to altitude. So if I was doing it again, I would try very hard to be luckier. <laughs> I don't know. How well, they say that people make their own luck, don't they? I mean, there must be something that you could do. Um, what about going going to Mexico City? Oh, you could go to Mexico. I'm not sure about that. It seems a bit. I think I'd love. I would love when they when they made up the rules for the athletes are record. I'd love them to have said that attempts should be made um, at sea level because going to Mexico, yeah, it would make a difference. But it seems very unreasonable to then specify effectively specify that anyone who wants to break the record has to get themselves their bikes and all their friends and family to Mexico mm. to have a go mm. at it. it. It pushes the cost up, and that's that's one of the joys of the R is that it's so simple. Anyone can have a go. It's supposedly a nice, simple bike. It should be pretty cheap, so you shouldn't have to go up and, a mountain. And have you, what about any, you know, making friends with the UCI? I mean, do, they, do you still feel that they're out to get you? Oh, the UCI, I don't think I've ever been out to get me. There are riders who the UCI has been out to get. Um, the, the, the UCI is an organization that is not well equipped to cope with people coming in from left field to have a go at these things. They like to talk, work their way through with the teams and the pro, the pro team managers and so on. So if you turn up with your bike and say you're having a go, it takes them aback slightly and they, they don't really know what to do with you. And that's, that's why you can sort of come off with these sort of clashes with, with authority. It's not really that they're right to get you. It's just that they don't know what the hell to do about well, like, you. What about, you know, I mean, you, you did propose in the, in the book um, a kind of standard set of bikes that the UCI should make that people can just come along, and come along and pick one if they want to do the hour and then the UCI can't have any grumbles about bicycles. I guess you could have, you know, an hour every year. You know, there's only, it can only take place on one day and then the UCI says anyone who wants to come along and has a, have a go, they can do that. 
Uh, yeah, you could do. You could standardize it. I mean, the, the idea of the standard bikes, um, you get one from the UCI, you use it unaltered and you give it back. And it was actually Graham Abreu's idea. And it, like a lot of Graham Abreu's thinking, if your first instinct is that that's a bit odd. And then the more you think about it, the more sense it makes. If, if they want to standardize it, then what could possibly be more standard than, um, than giving you the bike to do it on? And so you haven't said whether you're going to have another go. When are you going to make up your mind? Oh, if somebody was prepared to pay for it, I'd probably have another go. It's not the cheapest occupation in the world. It should be simple, but you've got to rent the track, you've got to get the officials, the timekeepers and all the rest of it. So um, if Resonance FM feel like sponsoring, uh, sponsoring an attempt, I'm sure I'll, I'll give it my best shot. Well, once we've bought our new aerial, <laughs> uh, then maybe we can talk about sponsoring people to attempt the hour. What do you reckon to that, Kristin? Yeah, why not? <laughs> well, so uh, what have you got for the rest of the season lined up? I've got a few more races. Um, obviously, I'm I'm trying to do a little bit of book promotion as well because having written the book, it would be kind of nice if people bought it and read it and, and hopefully enjoyed it. Uh, I've got national circuit championships in September, a few more races, bits and pieces. An awful lot of the time trial season is actually is is already over through sort of May and June, but uh, I'll keep racing, keep training until it, uh, it starts getting dark and wet and horrible, and then I'll take a take a few weeks off and then get back to it for next year. Terrific. Well, all the best of luck and thanks very much for coming on the show. Well, thanks, Jack. And um, yeah, The Hour, The Sporting Immortality the Hard Way by Michael Hutchinson is published, I think it's published today, is it? Or last no, week? No, it's, it's been published a couple of weeks ago. No. Um, and uh, it is around, it is in the shops. 11 Yellow Jersey Press. Um, and it's a terrific read. Really, really great, great book. Um, very funny. I haven't laughed so much since, uh, I think since I read Tim Moore's French Revolutions, which is a kind of even more but- high-octane but you, la- you laughed more when you read my book, yeah? <laughs> well, Michael, um, thanks again. And next week on the show, uh, we're going to be talking about the Tour de France, um, hopefully live from the Charles Lamb pub. Next up is a uh, slide guitar, I think, on the clear spot. This is Resonance FM. You've been listening to The Bike Show. <laughs>